Welcome back to The Spirit of Haggard. We are excited today. If you have had any interest in equine neonatology, equine neurology, hyperbaric medicine, infectious disease, or even emergency response, you are going to want to pay attention today. We have the director of the Haggard McGee Medicine Center with us. And Dr. Nathan Slovis, we are thrilled to sit down and pick your brain. I personally know it is awfully difficult to get you into a seat across the table and keep you here for just a few minutes. So we will let you tell us a little bit about who you are and where you're from. You and I have some similarities, both of us being from Maryland and claiming Paris, Kentucky now as home. So I'm excited to have this opportunity to really kind of dive into your career in equine veterinary medicine. So thanks for being here. Welcome, Dr. Slovis, and give us a little bit of background. Well, thanks, uh, Jody, for the introduction. So my background, uh, Annapolis, Maryland, uh, that's where I was pretty much raised. Actually, a small little town called Severna Park, that's right, right outside Annapolis. Yeah. Uh, born in Air Force Base in Warner Robins, Georgia, okay. during the Vietnam era. Wow. And then from there, my dad uh, went to Annapolis, Maryland, and yeah. we've been. my family was there for, God, you know, 40 years or so. Okay. And then uh, from there, uh, went on to Radford University. So that's in, in Southern Virginia, those of you who don't know. And then from there, I went to uh, Purdue Veterinary School. Yes. Internship at Arizona Equine. Great place there. Residency at University of California, Davis. And then uh, came here to Haggard, thought I'd only be here for a year, and now I've been here for over 23 years. Wow. That's a theme. You know, we talk about that in many of our episodes as we have worked with and talked with your colleagues. So many of you come here, whether it's internship or early in your career, and it's going to be a stop on your journey. And here you are years later, still calling Haggard and Lexington, Kentucky home. So I think that's part of the magic. I do have to say, you know, when we talk about introducing and who you are to the Haggard family, when I started in central Kentucky as a drug rep, as a pharmaceutical rep about a decade ago, that, and you know, I'm not going to lie, you can be a little bit intimidating to have to work with Dr. Slovis, you know, early on, you're like, oh my gosh, this, this man moves at a, at a rapid pace and he has no time for anything but efficiency and productivity. I think that was my, (laughs) my initial thoughts about working with Dr. Slovis. So I have enjoyed being able to work with you over the past 10 years. And it's amazing, really, the role that you play here at Haggard. So I want to jump into that, kind of what the day-to-day Dr. Slovis looks like. You are the director of the Medicine Center. And so let's start there. Let's talk about your role in medicine and how that has evolved over your 23 years. You know, well, luckily, we have a great support team, you know, a great group of doctors. You know, all work together. And, um, you know, I was just, you know, lucky to get the directorship. You know, we had some great doctors before me. Dr. Byers, Fairfield Bain was one of the directors. Then I became one of the youngest directors. Yes. And now it's myself and Dr. Catherine McGilvery. We're co-directing now because the, okay. the facility's gotten just so big. Yeah. That you need more than just one person to do. 
you know, look at the day-to-day operations. So not only do we do day-to-day operations, but you got to be taking care of the patients. So, you know, so there's like two hats you're sort of wearing, you know, the day-to-day operations as well as the veterinary hat. So, right. And, um, but the great thing is we have a great support staff with, with Lynn Hewlett as a tech, you know, head of our technicians. We try to have weekly meetings, at least talk, discuss things of how, you know, what our goals are for the clinic how to keep things going efficiently, how to train our staff. And that's a big thing. You know, staff isn't just thrown into the clinic and start becoming a technician. You know, they're trained. We have a handout. A lot of clinics around the world want our handouts just to learn how, to, how we train our technicians. Yeah. But they go through training. And then, well, you know, once they get the thumbs up by their shift supervisors, then they can start taking over, you know, veterinary, you know, technician care. Yes. And, you know, our team, when we first started, it was, there's a handful of doctors. Now we're playing, trying to get nine internal medicine doctors. I mean, it's crazy to see that number of internal medicine doctors. And it's just because of our caseload here. Uh, yes, I was going to say that. Yeah. It just, it, our caseload has just grown. It, you know, you used to just think, oh, Haggard was just for thoroughbreds. You know, when I got here, I thought, you know, my family wasn't into thoroughbreds. You know, I was more, you know, pony clubber, my, my brother and sister. Uh, road. You know, my brother's a small animal vet now in Virginia, Richmond area. Okay. My sister's a physical therapist down in Florida. And, you know, we all rode as kids. Uh, and then my sister sold her horse to buy a car. And it seemed like the men in the family only, only ones were riding, you know, my dad, my brother, and myself. And, um, you know, so it was just something that I wasn't used to the thoroughbred aspect. Okay. So it's kind of intimidating coming from, coming from uh, UC Davis, coming here. And thinking, you know, what's a thoroughbred business is like, you know, am I going to be able to get along and, and, and be able to be the best that I can be? But when you come here, we treat everything, you know, just, just thoroughbreds, just everything. Yes. And so, um, you know, made it very comfortable. And, okay. and, and the, the, our clients are great. Just pure, you know, horsemen. Makes it very easy for communication, getting along. And just they allow us to do things that, Nowhere else they'll allow you to do because we are working on, as I told people, it's almost like I'm a Ferrari mechanic. I'm working on their fine automobile. You know, it's a live animal. Don't get me wrong, but you know, that's what it is. You know, you're working on their top animal and they want to do what it takes to make, make sure it's that animal survives and does well. Right. And we talk about that a lot, the standard of care here and just, you know, how important that is and that the standard of care here across equine medicine is often set right here. At Haggard in Lexington, Kentucky, you know that you are writing protocols. So let, let's talk a little bit about some of the roles that have come out of your role here at Haggard. You are a specialist in multiple areas. You're also boarded. Correct. So you are boarded in internal medicine. Internal medicine, correct. And I got certified in hyperbaric technology in humans and in animals. Because we felt like when we brought the hyperbaric technology you know, into Kentucky, it was with the uh, help of Kesmark. You know, they were one of the first ones to bring it in. Yes. And uh, I've been Kirsten Johnson at the time. Got myself and Fairfield involved. Fairfield okay. Bain, that is, one of, our, one of our old veterinarians in the area. And started teaching us more about it. Bill Kazer from Windstar was introducing it in the area. And we started investigating it. And I thought it was just a very unique therapy that could be used for certain horses. And I, as I started delving into it, I go all in. If I'm going to be involved with it, I go all in. And I yes. want to become certified, the highest certification I can as a veterinarian in hyperbaric medicine. So I got certified 
as a human technologist first, and then wow. was one of the founders of Brain into Veterinary Medical Hyperbaric Society, you know, into, into play. So we can certify veterinarians because when done properly, hyperbarics can do amazing things. But it's not the cure all end all. You, you got to know when to use it, when not to use it. So. Tell us a little bit more about that. I, I have questions that I know that our listeners will want to know. Give us a little bit of the who, what, and why on hyperbaric. Yeah, so hyperbaric medicine is, and we call it hyperbaric oxygen because in our chamber, they're saturated in oxygen. And again, the big thing is that people don't understand is that hyperbaric oxygen is not just that you breathe in a bunch of oxygen because our body is already set. 98% of our red blood cells is already saturated with oxygen. If you don't have any other health, you know, you know, issues. So people go, well, what's that extra 2% of oxygen going to do? You know, so, so I saturate my red blood cells with more oxygen, big deal. And they're right. It's not a big deal, but what it is, we pressurize you and that oxygen gets into the veins. It's like your soda, your Coca-Cola in that can, get a lot of, you know, carbon dioxide. Right. And it is pressurized in there. Once you pop open that top, all the bubbles come up to the top. Well, guess what I'm doing? I'm pressurizing oxygen into your bloodstream. Literally dissolve it under pressure. So therefore, when it goes to these vital organs that need oxygen or oxygen deprived, this oxygen under pressure can so-called, just like you open up the can of Coke, and so-called come out of that blood, you know, the, the bloodstream into these organs. Gets forced into these organs. And that's pretty much the basic, okay. simple approach of what hyperbaric can do. And having increased oxygen levels in these organs can affect your, how your white blood cells work, how your body uh, heals. Uh, bacteria, hey, some bacteria hate high oxygen environments. Okay. So they can get injured. And then your, back, and your antibiotics will help injure it. So hyperbaric will injure it. Your antibiotics will injure it. When I'm talking about injuring it, that's the bacteria. And then your white blood cell cells are augmented with this oxygen. They're ready to fight. You know, it's like they are on a sugar high, you know, but they're on an oxygen high and then they can destroy the bacteria. So okay. there are different, different ways of approaching how to destroy and, you know, kill this bacteria. And at the same time, enhance healing. It releases growth factors, many things you can do, but it's not a cure all end all. And that's a problem. Everybody puts them in the chamber, think they're going to go, I'll get better. You got to, have a proper case selection and give us an example of a proper case selection so in, in my in my hands so a proper case selection let's say an osteomyelitis so osteomyelitis is a bone infection okay right so when you start getting a bone infection in that bone you may have an abscess and that what that does that's going to build up some pressure in that bone your animal is sore it's painful because mm-hmm. you have an abscess within a bone and your bone can't expand so as you get that abscess there you know, when it's a pathway, as it starts getting under pressure, it's going to decrease blood flow to that area. Well, you need the trash man to come on in, to call him osteoclast. The trash man have to come on in to clear the infection. The trash man is going to have to come to your town to clean up after that hurricane, right? Yeah. If you can't clean up the trash, how are you going to build the infrastructure to build those buildings? You're not going to build your buildings on top of trash. So guess what? Those osteoclasts require so much oxygen, more oxygen than the structures that build the bone. If, you don't, if you're under pressure and you don't have proper blood flow, you're not going to get oxygen in that area. How are your trash men going to work to clear it up? So that's where the hyperbaric oxygen can help the osteoclast, the, tra- osteo- osteoclast, the, the trash men that break up, you know, get rid of the junk. Then your osteoblasts, which produce bone, 
they also need oxygen. And once the trash is gone, they can produce oxygen. It's all part of the healing process. And at the same time, your body's fighting the infection, trying to get rid of the bacteria. That's one way that we've really helped. I think it really helps with that. And bone infections. Some things I don't, at least in my personal experience, I don't have a great success on. These huge internal abscesses because of rotococcus. Mm. They're so walled off. I mean, they are literally could be centimeters thick or inches thick capsule, you know, around this big abscess, maybe the size of a volleyball. And people want to try them in the hyperbaric chamber. I've done it and it's quite expensive. I cannot say the hyperbaric chambers help those animals out. It's just too big. Yeah. And so then you get a bad rep. Well, the hyperbaric didn't work on this abscess. Well, heck, if it's a human, you would end up opening you up, try to remove it, reset colon. And unfortunately, you may have a colostomy bag hanging yes. out. Well, that's not realistic for a horse. You know what I mean? So, right. uh, you know, a lot of those horses we end up euthanizing because we can't re- we can't resect, you know, the, the abscess. Right. Because it's not a human. You know, you got to look at quality of life for these horses. So that's, that's, that's like some of the things that I'm thinking about. Or some of these yeah. late stage diseases that maybe they have a misdiagnosis. It's actually cancer and not an abscess going on, but you get a misdiagnosis, but the referring veterinarian wants to get hyperbarics because they, they saw X, Y, or Z, you know, that, you know, cancer and hyperbarics don't mix, you know, right. Um, those are just some of the, some of the, you know, the, the examples I have, you know, okay. just experience yes. what we've seen and what it works for. Right. Absolutely. Okay. How long have you had hyperbaric here at Haggard? Boy, the first one, first patient we ever put in the hyperbaric, I still got the picture. It was uh, Hub Johnson and myself, one of the co-founders from Kesmark. We put it in the chamber. It was 2009, the full okay. chamber we had, a special chamber. Wow. It was a dummy full. They use it with humans. And, and we try to use the human protocol, trying to figure out. You know, again, we're just trying to figure this thing out as the yeah. tracks are being laid down, you know, the train's running. And we were just trying to extrapolate. There's been no studies on humans, on horses, right. so we're extrapolating. Yes. And Doug Herthel. Out in California, oh, yeah. one of the big ones. Okay. You know, the big big guys were, were, were Kirsten and Hub Johnson and, and Doug Herthel were pretty much the, the people that helped bring it to the horse community. Right. First. And that, you know, really, again, speaks to the innovation that comes out of, you know, you, the Haggard team and family and, and here in central Kentucky. Let's pause for just a minute to hear from our friends at Bymeda our Spirit of Haggard podcast sponsor. Biomita might just be the largest animal health company you have never heard of until now. Biomita Animal Health's equine products have been trusted by veterinarians and horse owners since the 1960s where our Irish roots began. Biomita is one of the largest producers of dewormers for horses like Equimax, Bimectin, Duramectin, and Exodus. World-renowned equine athletes rely on polyglycan, a patented formula designed to replace lost or damaged synovial fluid, and Confidence X 1% pheromone gel that reduces and prevents equine stress, to name a few of our branded products. We encourage you to consult with your equine veterinarian before using any equine products for your horse. Also, please visit buymedaus.com to learn more about our full product offerings and where you can buy them. 
if we kind of move along the list of your specialty areas, which are many, then we look at, I, I immediately think of you when I think about infectious disease and both really both infectious disease and emergency response. So you have set the protocols for many clinics and farms here and across the country and beyond. So talk to us a little bit about the evolution of your involvement in infectious disease protocols. Yeah, so infectious disease protocols you know, really hit home when I was at University of California, Davis. Okay. The, the vet school there, doing a residency that was back in the 90s. And we saw a lot of infectious disease. And the university was closed down at one time. I don't really say quote-unquote closed down, but they were having some issues at one time with, with, with salmonella. So they implemented infectious disease policies before I got there. And they were able to keep their hospital open. So when I got there, the standards of infectious disease, they had the highest bar because you know, once you've been affected, right. you know, you try to set protocols. So I thought, when I first got there as a resident, I said, this is crazy. I got to gown up just to see a regular horse. Why? Because it's a colic horse, increased risk of salmonella. And I thought, really? I never saw that in my internship. But then as we started looking and seeing, I started seeing how these infectious disease efforts, you know, the program really helped the patient and the horse and the, and the hospital. The hospital was their patient. Right. Because if you don't have, you have a sick hospital, you're going to have sick patients. Yes. And I like their philosophy. So I started seeing how it worked. And then I came to Kentucky and, you know, they were doing a good job, but I think they could do better. Mm-hmm. And just my experience at UC Davis, it is what we can bring to Haggard's for biosecurity and try to get more proactive. And it seemed to help with our facility mm-hmm. prevent because... You know, there were times where, boy, it was like the early 2000s where salmonella really took a storm here. Right. And, you know, we keep track. You've got about 1%. It's usually less than 1% is our goal for animals, you know, having salmonella in, in our hospital. It doesn't mean they're getting right. into it. That, you know, usually we get about 0.5% or 0.3% of patients will come in with salmonella. Okay. And, you know, a bad year for us is getting 0.5% of animals obtaining salmonella in our hospital it can happen right. you know it's unfortunate but these animals are on antibiotics they're sick they, they may be susceptible to disease from an animal that may be carrying it or bringing yeah. it in and when salmonella really hit this area hard uh, our biosecurity protocols really kept salmonella in check when other local areas were having problems mm-hmm. and you know really that really made made me feel good as an infectious disease officer for our clinic that our protocols really help try to tamper things down. And then when farms are having problems, it's going out to the farms, helping them out because you don't want to see your clients or your friends having problems. So you go out to the farms, help them out, set up protocols. But as, as one person told me, Nathan, you know, we're not a hospital, you know, your protocols are different. I can't do that here. Right. And I understand that. So we'd start tailoring product, tailoring programs that will fit to their farm. It's not a cookie cutter thing because certain farms can do certain things because they're yeah. staffed. Certain farms can't. Then we started going out there. If you had a problem, I would come out to your farm. I wouldn't do it over the phone because I need to come see it, yes. feel it, watch your protocols. What do you do? How do you clean the stalls? How do you disinfect stalls? Do you have a disinfecting stall protocol? How do you disinfect trailers? When your trailer comes, gets a horse mm-hmm. from a hospital environment that's been in isolation. Are you just going to drop the horse home? And then all of a sudden, p- pick up that broodmare to go to the breeding shed. Yeah. You know, and she's exposed to whatever may have been in that trailer. 
you know, trailer uh, disinfecting programs. I think it really helped out with local shippers because we were helping them out and informing them how we disinfect and what goes on. We set programs and they started raising standards, disinfecting their trailers afterwards. And they were doing an okay job, but they could do better. And they did do better. And it just really helped quiet down the salmonella outbreak. You you know, not obviously outbreak, but increased incidents going on here. So, and then we just, you know, it was early 2000, 2004, 2005, when we started going to the farms, offering biosecurity programs. And it was like a physical exam for your farm. They would get a, uh, go out there and take a look. We do a PowerPoint presentation to their staff. We give them something in writing. Mm-hmm. And the greatest thing is, you know, some of these farms were getting decreases in their insurance rates. Oh. Because fuck. some of their insurance rates, they were going, I don't know, again, I'm not an insurance salesman, but they started seeing a decrease in their rates because they had a standard operating procedures for biosecurity that will help you know, with whatever animals they have there or yes. insurance-wise, you know, care, custody, and control. If you have one of those, you give that to your insurance officer, your insurance salesman. Some of these insurance companies will give you discounts. Okay. And I didn't realize that until one of my clients said that. So then yeah. everybody started calling and they started getting, yeah, just getting proactive. Right. But the problem is some people get complacent. So it's something, if you do infectious disease protocol, you probably want to get a checkup. I don't know about every year. Mm-hmm. You know, if you're doing a good job, but maybe at least every couple of years, or at least when you're changing your barn manager, farm manager, right, broodmare manager, you know, reassess your infectious disease program so that everybody's yeah. still on board. Everybody has to buy in or it doesn't work. It's that yes. simple. Everybody has to buy in. Yeah. Standard of care. And it reminds me, you know, it's one of those lessons when you know better, you do better. And that was the evolution of that. I remember, you know, as I learned more and more about these biosecurity protocols and, it's one thing to think about lip chains and, and those kind of obvious things. I think some of us learned when we were, you know, seven or eight years old, don't ever put the end of the hose in a bucket. No, no, exactly. And then I was just on a strangles outbreak at a local farm, you know, and I wouldn't say outbreak, but increased incidence, you know. So what we ended up noticing is that we talked about do not put the hose in the bucket. So they did. But you know what they did afterwards? Well, they were taking the hose and they put the hose through the bars, yes. rushing in there. And then there was a remo- removing the hose between the bars, you know, the stall ledge, they rubbed the hose on that stall ledge. And I'm like, this is right in front of the water bucket. What do you think yeah, the horse does? Sneaks? It's going to sneeze? And I'm like, you just contaminated the hose. They're like, well, we didn't put it in the bucket. <laughs> and that's why it's important to going to the farms and seeing this because right. if I just talked over the phone to the farm manager, I wasn't there. I think they're doing everything perfect. Then you see that and you're like, guys, look, and they're like, Oh, okay. Yeah. It's education. Sometimes you just got to go and see you got yes. boots on the ground. Proper biosecurity cannot be done without boots on the ground. I remember thinking of you not to bring up a sore subject, but when the pandemic, when all of these new protocols for us, for humans, when the pandemic happened, I'm like, I, they just need to go talk to Dr. Slovis. They just need yeah, to ask yeah. him kind of how these protocols need to work because I just felt like in our lifetime, there was no standard set. But in, you know, the equine industry, there is a biosecurity yeah. standard that is set. You, there, there's a lot of knowledge and experience. Oh, yeah. Our horse community here, it, it was just like routine. You yes. Wash your hands. Yeah, everybody does that. You know, every, you know, our horse community is so educated here. And probably just anywhere around the, the, the country, you know, horse community just knows about infectious diseases, washing their hands. It's like yeah. the hog farmers, you know, they know it. All I was just going to say. I, I'm, I'm yeah. smart. So it wasn't anything new for us. Right. 
that has been quite an evolution and innovation. And then let's take it one step further and let's talk about emergency response because that also in your tenure. So tell us, tell us about that. I got to take it to a lot of this information was at, at uh, UC Davis. We had an emergency response team. They just started forming. I was one of the first emergency responders at University of California, David, John Madigan, myself, Larry Galupo. And the first incident I had was a forest fire out in, in, in the foothills right outside of um, University of California, Davis. We had a team together and the emergency response Units didn't really understand. They had a veterinary team. They kind of did, but didn't. So we started going to the fire lines. You know, the police were like, who the hell are you? We had to show them some tags, just some makeshift, you know, tags in a vet truck. They let us through. And it was just what what we did to help out the animals just stuck to me. I feel like I was in a war zone. I just felt the helicopters coming over us and just the bass and the sound and, and the vibrations hitting your body, dumping the water. They didn't let us up to the front lines, but we were close enough that I could see the flames 200 yards away. And we were with uh, these vet students at the time and just triaging these these uh, anywhere from ewes to rams to any animal we can get and triage them and bring them to a, uh, a, a center for, for uh, triage, you know, away from the scene. We triage them at the scene so we can, we can salvage, who we can save, administer fluids, and then get them on a trailer out of there. Wow, And I just felt like we really, really, really helped out. It was really interesting. So then we came fast forward to here. One of my internship at Arizona, we had a down horse trailer on one of the major highways right outside Phoenix. How are we going to get the horses out? You know, what are we going to do? And we kind of made shift and got them out. But I didn't really do it, you know, to the level of satisfaction that I would like. And then uh, Tomas and Rebecca Jimenez at a South Carolina at the time, Clemson, they were sort of the gurus and came to large animal equine rescue, went to one of their courses to learn more. You know, they're both firefighters. Yes. And they use their knowledge because they're horse people too, to how we can extrapolate them for horses. And then from there, I thought we need to do this for central Kentucky. We right. need to get something out there because I got tired of people calling up. I got a down horse, but we can't help you. You, you know, just try to get him on the trailer. Well, how do I get him on the trailer? I don't know. Yeah. You know, or how do you get them out of a sinkhole? Yeah. Exactly. And so we started training. Our goal when we first came here is that we need to educate the fire department here. And uh, Haggard, you know, Equine Medical Institute at that time, and uh, several other co-sponsors, you know, Big Pharma, we rented out the Kentucky Horse Park and trained a bunch of local people for free. The whole thing is they really got excited because yes. they had firefighters teaching firefighters and also horse people and just grew. That was over a decade ago. And just yeah. how many people we've taught for firefighters in the area. And how many people from Bourbon County to Scott County to Fayette County, all the around and surrounding counties have people that have been trained in technical large animal rescue. They can help out. They have rescue glides, yeah. ropes. They know the basics. And they've just carried on for the rest of their staff. So just seeing that has been huge. Now, I've stepped down as the director of Econ Rescue here. Dr. Schaub is doing it now. We're lucky because the Kentucky Horse Council is now taking the ball. Okay. Haggard is, is one of the sponsors, but Kentucky Horse Council is the, the driver. And so they've taken the ball and it continues going yearly. I think it's September to October. Again, you got to go on their website. Right. But so those of you that are interested, it's open to anybody. And it's a great course. I mean, it's absolutely superb. It is. Yeah. It's incredible. 
So, and it's impressive to be able to respond to those kinds of emergencies. Good to know. So let's switch gears a little bit. And as we go through your list of specialties, one of my favorite times of the year to come and peek through the window is foaling season. I don't ever dare open that door. I just wave to you all, my friends, through the window somewhere between January 15th or February 1st and sometime in the middle of end of May. So walk us through the neonate ICU and your your passion there. Yeah, so the neonate ICU, you know, we have uh, 12 stalls or, and it's pretty much like a human ICU. I mean, we have... Tempur-Pedic mattresses, we have oxygen tubes going to the folds, we'll have urinary bags, you know, urinary catheters, we'll have feeding tubes. Sometimes if you have a, a fractured rib or a bad pneumonia, we'll have chest strains in these animals. You'll have, continue, you'll have three or four pumps going into them for nutrition, for blood pressure. It's, and I mean, it's, it's an adrenaline rush. Unfortunately now, you know, the cost of veterinary medicine is not cheap because we use human medicine and some of them are back order. They used to have generics. Now you can't get some of the generics. We got to get the brand name and they're four or five times as expensive. You know, if they need intensive care, I'm talking right. intensive care foal. Yes. The foal that's having problems standing needs to be in a bed. So the dynamics have changed there because some people cannot afford that care. And then you got it. There's different ways to triage a foal and you do your best you can under, under the financial constraints you're at doesn't mean to give up, you know, if somebody can't do something, but it, it's, a, it's, you know, it's sometimes you got to cut back and some of, sometimes, you know, you, you, you know, you lose those foals and, and I'm a sore loser, you know, but mother nature takes them and it's, it's tough to carry on the day when you yeah. put your time and effort, the techs put their time and effort, you lose some, but luckily uh, 85 plus percent of animals that come to our clinic, you know, in our neonatal unit, you know, live. That's amazing. Cause back in the day, you know, if you're getting 60%, you're happy, 50%. You know, this is, you know, 30 plus years ago. Now it's getting that high, you know, to, yes. you know, you know, our information, what we've learned, have come such a long way. Yeah. And, um, you know, we, we try to do our best to save them, but it's, it's not a dull moment because these are, you know, they are, you know, young animals, don't have the immune system like a normal horse and they'll throw you a curveball. Their kidneys will stop working, but. No, no, no big deal. We'll, we'll give you a drug to help kickstart them. And there's a lot of variations. And, and the illnesses are getting worse, not because it's anything new. It, it's, it's just because a lot of veterinarians can treat, you know, treat some of these animals on the farm. They do a right. great job. So the ones that come to us now are, are the worst of the worst because some of these vets can take care of them on the farm or, you know, or try to do preventative measures to prevent them from getting more brain injury at the farm after they're born. So the ones that come to us are usually the worst, the worst, when it used to be a little easier. Yeah. And that's just in general because we're training more and more better veterinarians out there in the field. They can do so much more in the field than they did 20 or 30 years ago. Easy, easy. And so the ones that come in now, it's more of a mental push-up. They are tough cases. And to be a good medicine person, you got to be a jack-of-all-trades. You, you know, you are... The uh, immunologist, you are the gastroenterologist, you're all the urologist, you're the neurologist, you're the cardiologist. People don't realize that you got to be in, in this area in Kentucky, 
you got to be good at all those as an internal medicine doctor. Right. Because the clients expect it. You know, that is probably my favorite aspect of being here on the Haggard campus is seeing the intensity and the passion and the level of skill and the level of care and the pace at which the neonate ICU operates during half of the year, really. And it's really impressive. It's an impressive display of teamwork and communication and biosecurity. You know, there's just so much going into what happens there. Let's take a quick break to recognize our Spirit of Haggard podcast sponsor, Bimeda. Bimeda might be the biggest animal health company you've never heard of until now. Bimeda's products have been trusted by veterinarians and owners since the 1960s when our Irish roots began. Bimeda is one of the largest producers of dewormers like Equimax, Bimectin, and Exodus. World-renowned equine athletes also rely on polyglycan a patented formula that replaces lost or damaged synovial fluid in Confidence X pheromone gel, which reduces and prevents equine stress. Consult your vet and visit buymedaus.com to see where to buy. So tell our listeners a little bit about the intensity of that season. And so when you are in March and April and you have 12 stalls full, maybe plus some, well, yeah, you got every year from dystocias, which is problems giving birth that right. may be occurring up in surgery and you're on call. So you got to send your team up there with our, um, you know, what we call a dystocia team with our medicine doctor, the animal, you know, they give birth to the, uh, the, the mare gives birth to the animal with the help of the surgeon helping deliver it. Usually compromise. And then you got to intubate them, ventilate them, call their ICU or NICU, say, hey, we got five minutes to bring down this bowl. Please get this stall ready. I need oxygen. I need X, Y, or Z fluids, get some antioxidants with the foal there. And then two seconds later, we got a mare coming in colicky. She's hemorrhaging. She just gave uh, birth. We uh, The mare comes in. We ultrasound. You got an abdomen, 20 centimeters of fluid. She's going through hypotensive shock. Heart rate's up. She's shaking. You don't have time to think. We go, we got a blood donor. Let's get a cross match. Let's get it going. Give me eight liters of blood. Let's get that mare going. Oh my gosh, we got a uh, head trauma is, uh, you know, coming in. This uh, this mare was out there, the other group of mares. She, she got kicked in the head. She's down. Next thing we know, we got an EPM case coming in. We'll have, you know, I mean, it just keeps going on and on, liver, respiratory. And and so the momentum keeps going. And it, you don't realize it, but within about what feels like a minute is the end of your day because things are just really intense. Yes. And then you have, you know, we're lucky because we're so busy. A lot of universities cannot rival how busy we are here in Central Kentucky for the experience. So in a four-month time frame, and this is what we're proud of, is that we have relationships with a variety of universities. Mm-hmm. And so the residents will come visit us, and that's internationally. So just this year, we had, because uh, I'm in charge of it, so 17 residents. That's why I know the number off the top of my head. Okay. That would come and do two week blocks here to learn, you know, m- you know, intense medicine, yes. neonatology specifically. That's what they're interested in, but it's everything. And then during that time period, we have eighty five students, so eighty five veterinary students. People think eighty five that's too much. Trust me, these veterinary students have a grin on their face because they're helping us out in every aspect. And uh, you know, as as we're, as we're triaging them, you know, they'll help hold the horse. They'll help. You know, me during the ultrasound or, 
you know what I mean, is not getting involved in doing the procedure, but they get to see, you right. know, and, and, and stuff like that. And just, it's didactic learning. They, they get to see it. And that's just the medicine department. Just so many people come here and just what we just give a little back to the community. And that's huge for me because, you know, I'm getting to, the, you know, you know, my career is getting to, you know, to the end. And so just to pass on the torch, you know, the light, the, the enthusiasm for these people, to, these veterinarians, young veterinarians to carry on the torch to the next phase of veterinary medicine. It's exciting to see. Yes. And just knowing that you had a little piece, a little touch on these individuals, maybe to push them to equine. Because right now it's really tough to find equine practitioners. Yes. You know, we've been looking for the intro medicine doctor. You know, as I said, we want nine of us. We have seven of us right now. Intro medicine doctors just for me- here. And to find the right personnel, you know, it takes a, it takes a certain personality. And it used to be really easy. We used to never advertise. People would be begging to come here. Now you have to advertise yeah. because um, the work-life balance, you know, you know, society has changed. And there's nothing wrong with it, but, but veterinary medicine has changed Yeah, because there's a lot of stressors because um, you always want to please. You always want to be there, but there's only 24 hours in a day and you got a family, you got yourself. Right. And we in vet, as veterinarians are some of the hardest workers. If I, if I ever get to, you know, reinvent myself and I hear somebody's applying for a job and they said, I'm a veterinarian. I'm like, you're hired. I wouldn't even, even, even look because I know you're a hard worker, you know, it's just an equine vet. Yes. And that really is a lot of the foundation of why we are doing the Spirit of Haggard podcast, right? Is there's, there's interest out there and we want to create that community that says you can do it and we are here for you. It will continue to change and evolve. This is not just a job. It is a career. It's part of our lives, right? Equine veterinary medicine is a lifestyle and that you are now mentoring and encouraging others to make some of those sacrifices for ultimately what I consider to be a very rewarding career. And what advice would you give young people who have an interest in equine veterinary medicine, Dr. Slovis? Yeah. So I I say, you know, if you have the passion and you have the will and you want to do it, I would do it again and again, over and over again, because I have the passion. I enjoy it. You know, I've, I've had horses since I was a kid. I was an avid rider. I stopped, you know, anything from galloping horses to dressage to 3D eventing. And it's just, it's just in, in me. But one thing, don't let it down if you're like, boy, I can't work the hours like these old farts did. But then as we start seeing a mental strain happening on people, you know, we had to rethink. So what I'm trying to say to young folks, if you're like, and you want to go into equine medicine, but you're worried about the work hours, there's enough flexibility, even with us and our department, that we can say, you know what, you want to work this X amount of week, you know, we can work something with you. Right. And if you're good, we're going to hire you and we'll figure out a way to keep you. Yes. That individual. And we'll do things. We'll, we'll think outside the box. We've had some vets that are like, they're only doing critical care. That means emergency critical care from yes. at night. Yeah. But guess what? When they leave, they ter- they transfer the cases. They don't have to worry about going home with the mental stress of what's going to happen to that horse because somebody, one of their other colleagues is going to take care of it. Right. They're here to cr- tr- triage it, stabilize it, hand it off to the next vet. But I think there's room to have work schedules that can give you a, a life balance. Right. And maybe only work X amount of days per week. Or, you know, get the weekends off. Um, you know, there's give and take. Right. And, and um, I think we're still in re- reinventing ourselves. I don't have the complete answer, but in our, our medicine department, 
know, we're planning on having people that do the night shift, a team that does a night shift, a team that takes care of the, of, of the patients throughout the day and, you know, is, is the main clinician on the, on the case, is, yeah. you know, and then you have a team that's specializing in emergency medicine, like your emergency clinicians at your ER. Right. They're going to transfer you to another doctor that's going to carry on with your care. But the good thing is that these veterinarians can come in in the morning and leave at five, go see their family, and somebody else is going to take care of the critical care triage patients yes. that may come overnight and even take care of your cases if they have a little hiccup or a little turbulence with their care. Right. And they can stabilize it until you get in. And that's what we're looking for veterinary medicine. That's going to be a new horizon for veterinary medicine. And so we're excited to be a part of that and find the right infrastructure. And at the same, same time, giving our clients the best care. So you're not going to give good care if you're up for 36 hours. Right. You're not going to do it. Absolutely. Trust me, I've tried it. And I, and I think I do. <laughs> but, but, but I know I could do, be, you know, do better. You just a little quicker and you catch things a little earlier. Yes. And, th- and that's not how we should do it anymore. It's so refreshing to hear that. And I know that there are listeners right now that are saying, okay, maybe it is changing. And I want them to hear that message from the right source, because I do think that there is still too much negativity about young people who want to pursue a career in equine and they are hearing, don't do it, don't do it. And they're, they're not hearing the positive aspect of, listen, there are going to be hard days. And we're honest about that. There's going to be hard days. There's going to be long days, especially I think initially we would say you're going to make some sacrifices as you establish your career, your preferred path. But ultimately you're hearing from those of you that are saying it can be done and we are evolving and your input matters and how you work matters to us. Yeah. And clients, you know, we always had a perception, oh boy, the client won't want it. They only want to see me. They don't want to see another vet. No, you know what they want? They want good medicine, a good veterinarian. It, it doesn't need to be Nathan Slovis. You know, when I'm long gone, there's going to be plenty of good vets beyond me, and people just won't even know who I am. Yes. And that's what, that's what I want. Just carry on. They're not thinking, oh, I wish I had Dr. XYZ back. And let's just hear about haggards. I love haggards. Yes. And so you bring up mentorship. How important has that been to your career? Oh, the, the mentorship. Oh, huge. Oh, I, I, absolutely. Yeah, they gave me motivation because I first, when I started veterinary medicine, I wanted to become a farrier. I, I was going to be a farrier and just do podiatry. That's what I wanted to do. So I, I was following I my farriers, did stuff like that. That's what I wanted to do. So I went to a place called Arizona Equine uh, with Ken Allen at the time. And as my goal is to go there. And when I got there, you know, you know, I was helping out in the surgery, but surgery would bore me, just bored me. And then internal medicine at the time, Dr. Ed Voss was there doing internal medicine. Okay. So he's the son of James Voss, who was the dean at Colorado, one of the a- Colorado State and AP presidents. And I saw him doing internal medicine. I said, this is kind of fun. And he made it fun. And I thought, boy, I didn't even think about residency. I said, you know what? I'm going to try to do a residency. And this went from there. So I forgot the podiatry. I was going to go to farrier school. I was going to do all this stuff. I was wow. ready. I was already geared up, already getting ready to go out to Oklahoma, go to farrier school. And then, um, you know, th- things change. Yeah. And so, so you just got to keep an open mind. Right. If anybody has to keep an open mind, so I never thought I'd go into internal medicine because, wow. because 
you know, when I had horses, all my horses had foot problems. So I always watched the farriers and got involved with them and just learned from different people, different farriers. And I thought that, wow, this is a passion I want because I want to treat horses like what my horses had. Yes. And then I just went to a different path. And you took a different path. And, you know, that's, and look what happens. And I came here. I was going to stay to Haggard's for a year. I said, I'm only going to stay here for a year. When they, Doug Byers headhunted me from uh, UC Davis. They was trying to hire me here. I had a good friend, Kim Sprayberry, that was here, old yes. resident mate. They headhunted me. And I, I want to go back to the East Coast, open up a practice. I want to do my own. And, I, and they wanted to sign me on for a contract. I said, you know, I prefer only one year. And then I um, you know, rented a place in Georgetown. And then that one year turned into 23 years you know, <laughs> right. because it gets addicting. You know, and I, th- I thought, boy, grass is green on the other side. This is great. Even though, you know, I didn't start the company. I didn't do anything. I, you know, they kept me as part of family and that's the family environment here. And you've raised a family here. I have. Yeah. Two boys. Yeah. 14 and 15 year old. You still have horses in your life personally yes. as well as professionally. Yeah. Yep. Yep. Exactly. So, I mean, every aspect of this, you have truly kind of built your life here in central Kentucky when you were just going to stay a year. Yeah, no, exactly. And my wife made it happen because she gave me the opportunity to keep going on while she raised the family. She sacrificed her career as a school teacher. She was inner city Cincinnati school teacher. Wow. And helping out with the inner city kids. And, um, and then just went from there. So okay. That's what happened. I love it. I love it. And so the only aspect that we really haven't touched on yet is neurology. And so that is one of your primary interests. I can't believe I'm going to have to add podiatry to your your list moving forward, right? But I didn't know that about you, Dr. Slovis. But let's talk a little bit about equine neurology and where that interest comes from. Yeah, well, neurology is interesting because it's sometimes... You know, some of the syndromes are very, very characteristic. You know, when it comes to narcolepsy or things like that, you know, it's very characteristic. But some of these other neurological diseases, diseases, you know, EPM, everybody keeps talking about EPM, you know. But EPM is kind of fascinating because the neurological deficits are always a little different. You know, it, you know it's not always just straightforward. And it's just, um, you know, when it comes to neurology, it just seems like a lot of circuit, bre- you know, circuit breakers go off. You know, a lot of, a lot of I think of like electricity just... It's just very intriguing how the whole brain works and the body works and the nerves and the different nerve junctions and just all the different diseases that can affect it anywhere from concussions to parasites to, you know, uh, metabolic issues that can cause you to have issues with, with nerve function and congenital lesions. It, it's just, it's, it's this whole different world. So, and it's, it keeps you humble. That's what I like about it. Cause it keeps you humble. And how much of your time do you spend on that? How many cases do you see? We don't hear, you know, we hear about EPM and we hear about certain conditions, but when it really comes down to your study of neurology. Yeah, when it comes to study of neurology, it isn't that big of a caseload. There's a lot of veterinarians do a good job out in the field with the EPM. Like for me doing spinal taps EPM in the beginning, we were doing it all the time. Okay. Coming into the hospital, number of cases I personally treat in the hospital you know, I can count two hands, you know, you're, you know, but now again, I got, you know, we have six of us up there, so right. numbers add up, but it's not that many really in the grand scheme of things. Right. So it's really the odd neurological issues, the more of the toxic infectious diseases, such as, you know, botulism, mm-hmm. uh, you know, we'll, we'll see, we'll see several of those. 
We'll see other issues when it comes to mycotoxins, which are very interesting. So they ingest the toxin. Next thing you know, you know, it looks like they're, you think of a human high on some weird drug, you know, you know going around the stall, hitting their heads against the wall. Right. Or, But if you see something like that, it could be liver failure causing that. It could be, as I said, another toxin causing that. You know, it's, 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 it's a puzzle. And yes. that's, what I, that's what I like about it. So, you know, I like to be challenged, and that is definitely one of the hardest challenges. And the thing it is, you get a little technical equine rescue in there, as well as using your hat as a veterinarian, because you got to get that horse up in a sling. How are you going to get the horse off the trailer into the stall safely? Right. You know, we got rescue glides that years ago weren't even around. You know, rescue glide is like a fancy back brace, you know, you know to get your horse, on, on, you know, like a human onto a gurney. You know, it's like the same thing we, we do with a horse. Get them out of the trailers very seamlessly with not a lot of staff. Right. You know, you get to use a lot of technical skills at the same time to get them off the trailer safely, put them in a, in a sling safely. And at the same time, use your cerebral skills of understanding the disease process and really looking at them. Yeah. Fascinating. I think that, you know, all encompassing, I wanted to touch on those areas with you because, again, they're... We come into these careers oftentimes with our blinders on and we think about one or two or three different aspects that we can look into or pursue. And there is so much opportunity to find the areas that you truly are passionate about, whether it may not be what you thought on graduation day, you might think you're going to go into podiatry, but turns out you're not and you go in a different direction. So I, I wanted our listeners to get that feel for you and, and really understand some of the opportunities that are here. You, at 23 years of being here, you have published over 50 manuscripts. You speak nationally and internationally. You are truly a contributor to this industry and to veterinary medicine. And I think that's really important for our listeners to be able to hear what is possible and that that's been a rewarding career for you that you didn't sit down and have all written out in a nice, neat outline exactly what you were going to accomplish. No, exactly. Yeah, it doesn't always work that way. It doesn't. It doesn't. So I always like to ask about a favorite memory of yours or your favorite aspect of equine veterinary medicine. So if you look back or think back over your career, is there a standout moment, case, or day? Boy, you know, it isn't, you know, talking about a standout was at a group of Ohio State students that came during Rolex at the time. This is during marriage reproductive loss syndrome. Oh. And that was, wasn't a fond moment, but it was a hitch in the face, punch in the face moment when these trailers were just coming in left and right. It was just like, we had a traffic jam coming into our hospitals and just seeing all these sick foals coming in during that time period. And the vet students, every vet student, I put on a case, replacing IV catheters. And it was myself, the technicians, the vet students, anybody, all hands on deck getting these catheters in and trying to do it. And then an animal would die. We'd be like, okay, get that animal out of the stall. We got to get this next one. It's like I was triaging, like I was in the middle of a war. And in you just couldn't stop. You know, I felt helpless. And that's when I felt, I said, I never want to feel this way. And, um, you know, we started learning more and more about it and just organizational skills, how to triage animals, 
Luckily, we've never faced something like that ever again. But just from there, we just learned my, you know, triage skills. And it must be like what the doctors are going through COVID, just figuring out this patient going to ventilator, this patient can't. Yes. And so, yeah. so that, that, that's what hit me hard, you know, for, for that one, for, for a veterinary yes. experience there. Memory reproductive loss syndrome is, I've never worked harder in my life. And I remember thinking to myself, this is my first, one of my first years here. And I thought, is it always like this in central Kentucky? Because I got to get out. I'm not going to survive. Right. And when was that, 99 or thereabouts? That was 2001. 2001. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because yeah. I came in 2000. In 2001 is, is you know, the first foaling season was easy, easier. Because people call me up going, hey, my foal is born, but he's not breathing. And I've had three of those foals. I go, you got three? I said, I've never heard that. And I said, well, use this drug to try next time. Or maybe you want right. to foal him here. And then another client calls. I've had two foals that were born that weren't breathing. I'm like, what? Yeah. Say, I never learned this in vet school. What do you mean it's not, you know? Yeah. And, and then we realized what, what happened. Devastating. So that was absolutely devastating. So that was, you know, tough. In regards yeah. to trying to name my, my favorite success, boy, you know, I, there's been so many good ones. I, I mean, they're all been great cases in there. Yeah. Everywhere for fractured necks in, in a foal that was traumatized, that had to be in a sling. We had to use ultra, ultrasound waves. What we call is deep wave ultrasound that we help with with the healing of the uh, cervical vertebrae that they thought the animal would never stand again was standing and became a top stallion and and um, never raced but but because of genetics he was sound wow but we didn't want to take a chance of him racing and he became a top stallion in Texas to you know a miniature horse owned by a very affluent woman because uh, a lot of these horses you know they're They've been in the families or, or their grandparents brought in the generations of horses, the breeding, the bloodlines. You don't realize these horses, not only are they pets, not pets, but, you know, pets, yeah. you, 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 know, you know, they're part of the yeah. fabric of their life and their family. And if they lose one of them, it's like losing a fine piece of china from the china you know, cabinet. Yeah. And what I'm saying is not that they're, they're lifeless like a piece of china, but it's, it's something you cannot replace again. Right. You know, once it's broken, it is broken. And these people have gone through centuries, uh, some families, some families, decades, yeah. to get this certain bloodline. And you see the devastation on their face because they let down their relatives or their, or their family. You can right. see there's a lot of history, which I didn't really understand. But now, you know, I've been here long enough, you can understand why these bloodlines are so important. Once you lose yeah. one bloodline, you know, that is the passion. That is the desire. Yeah to take care of these animals and, and, their, and their bloodlines. It's just so unique if you really get delve into it. So it's kind of, it's fun. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Well, with that said, what else can we share with our listeners, Dr. Slovis? You, you've done such a great job, as I always say, of kind of pulling back the curtain and giving us a glimpse inside a day in the life and what really makes up the spirit of Haggard. And that is each and every one of you and your colleagues individually. So as we close today's episode, what else would you share with our listeners? Yeah. Veterinary medicine is fun. You know, it's a blast. It's um, I've always wanted to become a veterinarian ever since I was a kid with my uncle who was, was a small animal vet in Ohio. And, you know, if you have the passion, you have the desire, you know, pursue it. And if you get knocked down, you know, you don't get it in your first time vet school, just try again. You know, I mean, yes, it just, there's so many opportunities out there. And um, I don't think it really matters where you go to vet school. 
you know, as my dad always told me when he went to dental school, it didn't matter where you go, just as long as you do, do a good job in studying. It's all the same curriculum. Right. Just put in the effort. If you put in the effort, you know, you got the basic knowledge like anybody else is how you use that knowledge outside of vet school to, to project yourself. And, and that's the whole thing. So don't get down like, oh, I didn't get into one school. You know, you know, there's a variety of opportunities even outside the United States that may be cost effective for you. Yeah, absolutely. I love that. And we talk a lot about that because we hear that question all the time, right? And so we want to encourage you to listen to these stories and find these mentors who are ahead of you, 5, 10, 20 years ahead of you, doing the things you're interested in doing, meet them, learn from them, ask them questions, seek them out. So we encourage you to come visit Haggard and visit Central Kentucky. And if you are looking for additional information, you can visit us at www.haggard.com. You can reach out and touch base with Dr. Slovis and his team or anyone else here uh, in the Haggard family. And as we finish up this episode of The Spirit of Haggard, I am your host, Jody Lynch-Findley speaker, podcaster, and coach. And we hope that you will continue listening to each and every episode of The Spirit of Haggard. Thanks for being here, friends. Cheers to The Spirit of Haggard. Thanks for tuning in to The Spirit of Haggard podcast today, sponsored by Bymeda. I'm your host, Jody Lynch-Findley, speaker and podcaster. You can connect with me at jodyspeakslife.com.